Chapter Ten of the Border Legion by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Next day, when Kells called Joan out into the other cabin, she verified her hopes and belief, not so much in the almost indefinable aging and sadness of the man, as in the strong intuitive sense that her attraction had magnified for him and had uplifted him. "'You mustn't stay shut up in there any longer,' he said. "'You've lost weight and you're pale. Go out in the air and sun. You might as well get used to the gang. Batewood came to me this morning and said he thought you were the ghost of Dandy Dale. That name will stick to you. I don't care how you treat my men, but if you're friendly, you'll fare better.' Don't go far from the cabin, and, if any man says or does a thing you don't like, flash your gun. Don't yell for me. You can bluff this gang to a standstill. That was a trial for Joan, when she walked out into the light in Dandy Dale's clothes. She did not step very straight, and she could feel the cold prick of her face under the mask. It was not shame, but fear that gripped her. She would rather die than have Jim Cleve recognize her in that bold disguise. A line of dusty saddled horses stood heads and bridles down before the cabin, and a number of lounging men ceased talking when she appeared. It was a crowd that smelled of dust and horses and leather and whiskey and tobacco. Joan did not recognize anyone there, which in fact aided her in a quick recovery of her composure. Then she found amusement in the absolute sensation she made upon these loungers. They stared open-mouthed and motionless. One old fellow dropped his pipe from bearded lips, and did not seem to note the loss. A dark young man, dissipated and wild-looking, with years of lawlessness stamped upon his face, was the first to move, and he, with awkward gallantry, but with amiable disposition. Joan wanted to run. Yet she forced herself to stand there, apparently unconcerned, before this battery of bold and curious eyes. That, once done, made the rest easier. She was grateful for the mask, and with her first low, almost incoherent, words in reply, Joan entered upon the second phase of her experience with these bandits. Naturalness did not come soon, but it did come, and with it, her wit and courage used as she had become to the villainous countenances of the border ruffians, she yet upon closer study discovered wilder and more abandoned ones. Yet despite that, and a brazen, unconcealed admiration, there was not lacking kindliness and sympathy and good nature. Presently Joan sauntered away, and she went among the tired, shaggy horses and made friends with them. An occasional rider swung up the trail to dismount before Kell's cabin, and once two riders rode in, both staring, all eyes at her. The meaning of her intent alertness dawned upon her then. Always, whatever she was doing or thinking or saying, behind it all hid the driving watchfulness for Jim Cleve, and the consciousness of this fixed her mind upon him. Where was he? What was he doing? Was he drunk or gambling or fighting or sleeping? Was he still honest? When she did meet him, what would happen? 
How could she make herself and circumstances known to him before he killed somebody? A new fear had birth and grew. Cleve would recognize her in that disguise, mask and all. She walked up and down for a while, absorbed with this new idea. Then an unusual commotion among the loungers drew her attention to a group of men on foot surrounding and evidently escorting several horsemen. Joan recognized Red Pierce and Frenchy, and then, with a start, Jim Cleve. They were riding up the trail. Joan's heart began to pound. She could not meet Jim. She dared not trust this disguise. All her plans was as if they had never been. She forgot Kells. She even forgot the fear of what Cleve might do. The meeting, the inevitable recognition, the pain Jim Cleve must suffer when the fact and apparent significance of her presence there burst upon him. These drove all else from Joan's mind. Mask or no mask, she could not face his piercing eyes, and, like a little coward, she turned to enter the cabin. Before she got in, however, it was forced upon her that something unusual had roused the loungers. They had arisen and were interested in the approaching group. Loud talk dinned in Joan's ears. Then she went in the door as Kell stalked by, eyes agleam, without even noticing her. Once inside the cabin, with the curtain drawn, Joan's fear gave place to anxiety and curiosity. There was no one in the large cabin. Through the outer door she caught sight of a part of the crowd, close together, heads up, all noisy. Then she heard Kells's authoritative voice, but she could understand nothing. The babble of hoarse voices grew louder. Kells appeared, entering the door with Pierce. Jim Cleve came next, and, once the three were inside, the crowd spilled itself after them like angry bees. Kells was talking, Pierce was talking, but their voices were lost. Suddenly Kells vented his temper. "'Shut up! A lot of you!' he yelled and his power and position might have been measured by the menace he showed. The gang became suddenly quiet. "'Now, what's up?' demanded Kells. "'Keep your shirt on, boss,' replied Pierce, with good humor. "'There ain't much wrong. Cleve here throwed a gun on Golden, that's all.' Kells gave a slight start, barely perceptible, but the intensity of it and a fleeting tigerish gleam across his face impressed Joan with the idea that he felt a fiendish joy. Her own heart clamped in a cold amaze. Golden? Kells's exclamation was likewise a passionate query. No, he ain't crashed, replied Pierce. You can't kill that bull so easy. But he's shot up some. He's laying over at Beard's. Reckon you'd better go over and dress them shots. He can rot before I doctor him, replied Kells. Where's Bate Wood? Bate, you can take my kit and go fix Golden up. And now, Red, what was all the roar about? Reckon that was Golden's particular parts trying to mix it with Cleve, and Cleve trying to mix it with them, and me in between. I'm here to say, boss, I had a time staving off a scrap. During this rapid exchange between Kells and his lieutenant, Jim Cleve sat on the edge of the table one dusty boot swinging so that his spur jangled, a wisp of a cigarette in his lips. His face was white, 
except where there seemed to be bruises under his eyes. Joan had never seen him look like this. She guessed that he had been drunk, perhaps was still drunk. The utterly abandoned face, Joan was so keen to read, made her bite her tongue to keep from crying out. Yes, Jim was lost. What'd they fight about? queried Kells. Ask Cleve, replied Pierce. Reckon I just as leaf not talk any more about him. Then Kells turned to Cleve and stepped before him. Somehow these two men, face to face, thrilled Joan to her depths. They presented such contrasts. Kell was keen, imperious, vital, strong, and complex, with an unmistakably friendly regard for this young outcast. Cleve seemed aloof, detached, indifferent to everything, with a white, weary, reckless scorn. Both men were far above the gaping ruffians around them. Cleve, why'd you draw on Golden? asked Kells sharply. That's my business, replied Cleve, slowly, and with his piercing eyes on Kells, he blew a long, thin, blue stream of smoke upward. Sure, but I remember what you asked me the other day about Golden. Was that why? Nope, replied Cleve. This was my affair. All right, but I'd like to know. Pierce says you're in bad with Golden's friends. If I can't make peace between you, I'll have to take sides. Kells, I don't need anyone on my side, said Cleve, and he flung the cigarette away. Yes, you do, replied Kells, persuasively. Every man on this border needs that, and he's lucky when he gets it. Well, I don't ask for it. I don't want it. That's your business, too. I'm not insisting or advising. Kells's force and ability to control men manifested itself in his speech and attitude. Nothing could have been easier than to arouse the antagonism of Jim Cleve, abnormally responding as he was to the wild conditions of this border environment. Then you're not calling my hand, queried Cleve, with his dark piercing glances at Kells. I passed Jim, replied the bandit easily. Cleve began to roll another cigarette. Joan saw his strong brown hands tremble, and she realized that this came from his nervous condition, not from agitation. Her heart ached for him. What a white, somber face, so terribly expressive of the overthrow of his soul. He had fled to the border in reckless fury at her, at himself. There, in its wildness, he had, perhaps, lost thought of himself and memory of her. He had plunged into that unrestrained border life. Its changing, raw, and fateful excitement might have made him forget, but behind all was the terrible seeking to destroy and be destroyed. Joan shuddered when she remembered how she mocked this boy's wounded vanity, how scathingly she had said he did not possess manhood and nerve enough even to be bad. "'See here, Red,' said Kells to Pierce. "'Tell me what happened, what you saw. Jim can't object to that.' "'Sure,' replied Pierce, thus admonished. "'We all was over at Beard's, and several games was on. "'Golden rode into camp last night. "'He's always sore, but last night it seemed more than usual. "'But he didn't say much, and nothing happened. "'We all reckoned his trip fell through. "'Today he was restless. "'He walked and walked, just like a cougar in a pen. You know how Golden has to be on the move. Well, we let him alone, you can bet. 
but sudden-like he comes up to our table, me and Cleve and Beard and Texas all playing cards, and he nearly kicks the table over. I grabbed the gold, and Cleve he saved the whiskey. We'd been drinking, and Cleve most of all. Beard was white at the gills with rage, and Texas was suffocating. But we all was afraid of Golden, except Cleve, as it turned out. But he didn't move or look mean, and Golden pounded on the table and addressing himself to Cleve. I've a job you'll like. Come on. Job? Say, man, you couldn't have a job I'd like, replied Cleve, slow and cool. You know how Golden gets when them spells come over him. It's just plain cussedness. I've seen gunfighters looking for trouble and for someone to kill. But Golden was worse than that. Y'all take my hunch. He's got a screw loose in his nut. Cleve, he said, I located the Brander's gold diggings, and the girl was there. Some kind of white flash went over Cleve, and we all, remembering Luce, began to bend low, ready to duck. Golden didn't look no different from usual. You can't see any change in him, but I, for one, felt all hell burning in him. Oh, you have, said Cleve quick, like he was pleased. And did you get her? Not yet. Just looked over the ground. I'm picking you to go with me. We'll split on the gold, and I'll take the girl. Cleve swung the whiskey bottle, and it smashed on Golden's mug, knocking him flat. Cleve was up like a cat, gun burning red. The other fellows were dodging low. And as I ducked, I seen Golden flat on his back, dragging at his gun. He stopped short, and his hand flopped. The side of his face went all bloody. I made sure he'd cashed, so I leaped up and grabbed Cleve. It'd been all right if Golden had only cashed, but he hadn't. He came to and bellered for his gun and for his pards. Why, you could have heard him for a mile. Then, as I told you, I had trouble in holding back a general mix-up. And while he was hollering about it, I led them all over to you. Golden is lying back there with his ear shot off, and that's all. Kells, with thoughtful mien, turned from Pierce to the group of dark-faced men. This fight settles one thing, he said to them. We've got to have organization. If you're not all a lot of fools, you'll see that. You need a head. Most of you swear by me, but some of you are for Golden, just because he's a bloody devil. These times are the wildest the West ever knew, and they're growing wilder. Golden is a great machine for execution. He has no sense of fear. He's a giant. He loves to fight to kill. But Golden's all but crazy. This last deal proves that. I leave it to your common sense. He rides around hunting for some lone camp to rob or some girl to make off with. He does not plan with me or the men whose judgment I have confidence in. He's always without gold, and so are most of his followers. I don't know who they are, and I don't care. But here we split, unless they and Golden take advice and orders from me. I'm not so much siding with Cleve. Any of you ought to admit that Golden's kind of work will disorganize a gang. He's been with us for long, and he approaches Cleve with a job. Cleve is a stranger. He may be long here, but he's not yet one of us. Golden oughtn't to have approached him. It was no straight deal. We can't figure out what Golden meant exactly 
but it isn't likely he wanted Cleve to go. It was a bluff. He got called. You men think this over, whether you'll stick with Golden or to me. Clear out now. His strong, direct talk evidently impressed them, and in silence they crowded out of the cabin, leaving Pierce and Cleve behind. Jim, are you just hell-bent on fighting, or do you mean to make yourself the champion of every poor girl in these wilds? Cleve puffed a cloud of smoke that enveloped his head. I don't pick quarrels, he replied. Then you get red-headed at the very mention of a girl. The savage gesture of Cleve's suggested that Kells was right. Here, don't get red-headed at me, called Kells, with piercing sharpness. I'll be your friend if you'll let me. But declare yourself like a man, if you want me for a friend. Kells, I'm much obliged, replied Cleve, with a semblance of earnestness. I'm no good, or I wouldn't be out here. But I can't stand for these, these deals with girls. You'll change, rejoined Kells bitterly. Wait till you live a few lonely years out here. You don't understand the border. You're young. I've seen the gold fields of California and Nevada. Men go crazy with gold fever. It's gold that makes men wild. If you don't get killed, you'll change. If you live, you'll see life on this border. War debases the moral force of a man, but nothing like what you'll experience here the next few years. Men with their wives and daughters are pouring into this range. They're all over. They're finding gold. They've tasted blood. Wait till the great gold strike comes. Then you'll see men and women go back ten thousand years. And then what will one girl more or less matter? Well, you see, Kells, I was loved so devotedly by one and made such a hero of that I just can't bear to see any girl mistreated. He almost drawled the words, and he was suave and cool, and his face was inscrutable. But a bitterness in his tone gave the lie to all he said and looked. Pierce caught the broader inference and laughed as if at a great joke. Kell shook his head doubtfully, as if Cleve's transparent speech only added to the complexity. And Cleve turned away as if in an instant he had forgotten his comrades. Afterwards, in the silence and darkness of night, Joan Randall lay upon her bed, sleepless, haunted by Jim's white face, amazed at the magnificent madness of him, thrilled to her soul by the meaning of his attack on Golden, and tortured by a love that had grown immeasurably full of the strength of these hours of suspense and the passion of this wild border. Even in her dreams, Joan seemed to be bending all her will toward the inevitable and fateful moment when she must stand before Jim Cleve. It had to be. Therefore, she would absolutely compel herself to meet it, regardless of the tumult that must arise within her. When all had been said, her experience so far among the bandits, in spite of the shocks and suspense that had made her a different girl, had been infinitely more fortunate than might have been expected. She prayed for this luck to continue, and forced herself into a belief that it would. That night she slept in Dandy Dale's clothes, except for the boots, and sometimes, while turning in restless slumber, she had been awakened by rolling on the heavy gun, which she had not removed from the belt. And at such moments 
she had to ponder in the darkness to realize that she, Joan Randall, lay a captive in a bandit's camp, dressed in a dead bandit's garb and packing his gun, even while she slept. It was such an improbable, impossible thing. Yet the cold feel of the polished gun sent a thrill of certainty through her. In the morning she at least did not have to suffer the shame of getting into Dandy Dale's clothes, for she was already in them. She found a grain of comfort even in that. When she had put on the mask and sombrero, she studied the effect in her little mirror, and again she decided that no one, not even Jim Cleve, could recognize her in that disguise. Likewise, she gathered courage from the fact that even her best girlfriend would have found her figure unfamiliar and striking where once it had been merely tall and slender and strong, ordinarily dressed. Then how would Jim Cleve recognize her? She remembered her voice that had been called a contralto, low and deep, and how she used to sing the simple songs she knew. She could not disguise that voice, but she need not let Jim hear it. Then there was a return of the idea that he would instinctively recognize her, that no disguise could be proof to a lover who had ruined himself for her. Suddenly she realized how futile all her worry and shame. Sooner or later she must reveal her identity to Jim Cleve. Out of all this complexity of emotion, Joan divined that what she yearned most for was to spare Cleve the shame consequent upon recognition of her, and then the agony he must suffer at a false conception of her presence there. It was a weakness in her. When death menaced her lover, and the most inconceivably horrible situation yawned for her, still she could only think of her passionate yearning to have him know, all in a flash, that she loved him, that she had followed him in remorse, that she was true to him, and would die before being anything else. And when she left her cabin, she was in a mood to force an issue. Kells was sitting at the table and being served by Bate Wood. Hello, Dandy, he greeted her, in surprise and pleasure. This is early for you. Joan returned his greeting and said that she could not sleep all the time. You're coming round. I'll bet you hold up a stage before a month is out. Hold up a stage, echoed Joan. Sure, it'll be great fun, replied Kells with a laugh. Here, sit down and eat with me. Bate, come along lively with breakfast. It's fine to see you there. That mask changes you, though. No one can see how pretty you are. Joan, your admirer, Golden, has been incapacitated for the present. Then in evident satisfaction, Kells repeated the story that Joan had heard Red Pierce tell the night before and in the telling, Kells enlarged somewhat upon Jim Cleve. "'I've taken a liking to Cleve,' said Kells. "'He's a strange youngster, but he's more man than boy. I think he's broken-hearted over some rotten girl who's been faithless or something. Most women are no good, Joan. A while ago, I'd have said all women were that. But since I've known you, I think, I know different. Still one girl out of a million doesn't change a world.' "'What will this J Jim Cleve do when he sees me?' asked Joan, as she choked over the name. "'Don't eat so fast, girl,' said Kells. 
You're only seventeen years old, and you've plenty of time. Well, I've thought some about Cleve. He's not crazy like Golden, but he's just as dangerous. He's dangerous because he doesn't know what he's doing, has absolutely no fear of death. And then he's swift with a gun. That's a bad combination. Cleve will kill a man presently. He's shot three already, and in Golden's case he meant to kill. If once he kills a man, that'll make him a gunfighter. I've worried a little about his seeing you, but I can manage him, I guess. He can't be scared or driven, but he may be led. I've had Red Pierce tell him, you are my wife, I hope he believes it, for none of the other fellows believe it. Anyway, you'll meet this Cleve soon, maybe today, and I want you to be friendly. If I can steady him, stop his drinking, he'll be the best man for me on this border. I'm to help persuade him to join your band, asked Joan, and she could not yet control her voice. Is that so black a thing, queried Kells, evidently nettled, and he glared at her. I, I don't know, faltered Joan. Is this, this boy a criminal yet? No, he's only a fine, decent young chap gone wild. Gone bad for some girl, I told you that. You don't seem to grasp the point. If I can control him, he'll be of value to me. He'll be a bold and clever and dangerous man. He'll last out here, if I can't win him. Why, he won't last a week longer. He'll be shot or knifed in a brawl. Without my control, Cleve will go straight to the hell he's headed for. Joan pushed back her plate and, looking up, steadily eyed the bandit. Kells, I'd rather he ended his, his career quick and went to, to, than live to be a bandit and murderer at your command. Kells laughed mockingly, yet the savage action with which he threw his cup against the wall attested to the fact that Joan had strange powers to hurt him. That's your sympathy, because I told you some girl drove him out here, said the bandit. He's done for. You'll know that the moment you see him. I really think he, or any man out here, would be the better for my interest. Now I want to know if you'll stand by me, put in a word to help influence this wild boy. I'll, I'll have to see him first, replied Joan. Well, you take it sort of hard, growled Kells, then presently he brightened. I seem always to forget that you're only a kid. Listen, now you do as you like. But I want to warn you that you've got to get back the same kind of nerve. Here he lowered his voice and glanced at Batewood, that you showed when you shot me. You're going to see some sights. A great gold strike. Men grown gold mad. Women of no more account than a puff of cottonseed. Hunger, toil, pain, disease, starvation, robbery, blood, murder, hanging, death. All, nothing, nothing. There will be only gold, sleepless nights, days of hell, rush and rush, all strangers with greedy eyes. The things that made life will be forgotten, and life itself will be cheap. There will be only that yellow stuff, gold, over which men go mad and women sell their souls. After breakfast, Kells had Joan's horse brought out of the corral and saddled. You must ride some every day. You must keep in condition, he said. Pretty soon we may have a chase, and I don't want it to tear you to pieces. Where shall I ride? asked Joan. Anywhere you like, up and down the gulch. Are you going to have me watched? Not if you say you won't run off. 
You trust me? Yes. All right, I promise. And if I change my mind, I'll tell you. Lord, don't do it, Joan. I, I, well, you've come to mean a good deal to me. I don't know what I'd do if I lost you. As she mounted the horse, Kells added, don't stand any raw talk from any of the gang. Joan rode away, pondering in mind the strange fact that though she hated this bandit, yet she had softened towards him. His eyes lit when he saw her, his voice mellowed, his manner changed. He had meant to tell her again that he loved her, yet he controlled it. Was he ashamed? Had he seen into the depths of himself and despised what he had imagined love? There were antagonistic forces at war within him. It was early morning, and a rosy light tinged the fresh green. She let the eager horse break into a canter and then a gallop, and she rode up the gulch till the trail started into rough ground. Then turning, she went back, down under the pines, and by the cabins to where the gulch narrowed its outlet into the wide valley. Here she met several dusty horsemen driving a pack train. One a jovial ruffian threw up his hands in mock surrender. Hands up, pards, he exclaimed. Reckon we've run again, dandy Dan, come to life. His companions made haste to comply, and then the three regarded her with bold and roguish eyes. Joan had run square into them round a corner of slope, and, as there was no room to pass, she had halted. Sure it's a dandy Dan we've heard of, vouchsafed another. That's Dandy's outfit with a girl inside, added the third. Joan wheeled her horse and rode back up the trail. The glances of these ruffians seemed to scorch her with the reality of her appearance. She wore a disguise, but her womanhood was more manifest in it than in her feminine garb. It attracted the bold glances of these men. If there were any possible decency among them, this outrageous bandit costume rendered it null. How could she ever continue to wear it? Would not something good and sacred within her be sullied by a constant exposure to the effect she had upon these vile border men? She did not think it could while she loved Jim Cleve, and with the thought of him came a mighty throb of her heart to assure her that nothing mattered if only she could save him. Upon the return trip up the gulch, Joan found men in sight leading horses, chopping wood, stretching arms in cabin doors. Joan avoided riding near them. Yet even at a distance she was aware of their gaze. One rowdy, half-hidden by a window, curved hands round his mouth and called softly, Hello, sweetheart. Joan was ashamed that she could feel insulted. She was amazed at the temper which seemed roused in her. This border had caused her feelings she had never dreamed possible to her. Avoiding the trail, she headed for the other side of the gulch. There were clumps of willows along the brook through which she threaded away, looking for a good place to cross. The horse snorted for water. Apparently, she was not going to find any better crossing. So she turned the horse into a narrow lane through the willows and, dismounting on a mossy bank, she slipped the bridle so the horse could drink. Suddenly she became aware that she was not alone, but she saw no one in front of her or on the other side of her horse. Then she turned. 
Jim Cleve was in the act of rising from his knees. He had a towel in his hand. His face was wet. He stood no more than ten steps from her. Joan could not have repressed a little cry to save her life. The surprise was tremendous. She could not move a finger. She expected to hear him call her name. Cleve stared at her. His face, in the morning light, was as drawn and white as that of a corpse. Only his eyes seemed alive, and they were flames. A lightning flash of scorn leaped to them. He only recognized in her a woman, and his scorn was for the creature that bandit garb proclaimed her to be. A sad and bitter smile crossed his face, and then it was followed by an expression that was a lash upon Joan's bleeding spirit. He looked at her shapely person with something of the brazen and evil glance that had been so revolting to her in the eyes of those ruffians. That was the unexpected, the impossible, connection with Jim Cleve. How could she stand there under it and live? She jerked at the bridle, and wading blindly across the brook, she mounted somehow and rode with blurred sight back to the cabin. Kells appeared busy with men outside and did not accost her. She fled to her cabin and barricaded the door. Then she hid her face on her bed, covered herself to shut out the light, and lay there broken-hearted. What had been the other thing she had imagined was shame. That shrinking and burning she had suffered through Kells and his men. What was that compared to this awful thing? A brand of red-hot pitch, blacker and bitterer than death, had been struck brutally across her soul by the man she loved, whom she would have died to save. Jim Cleve had seen in her only an abandoned creature of the camps. His sad and bitter smile had been for the thought that he could have loved anything of her sex. His scorn had been for the betrayed youth and womanhood suggested by her appearance. And then the thing that struck into Joan's heart was the fact that her grace and charm of person, revealed by this costume forced upon her, had aroused Jim Cleese's first response to the evil surrounding him, the first call of that baseness he must be assimilating from these border ruffians, that he could look at her so. The girl he had loved, Joan's agony lay not in the circumstances of his being as mistaken in her character as he had been in her identity, but that she, of all women, had to be the one who made him answer, like Kells and Golden and all those ruffians, to the instincts of a beast. Oh, he'd been drunk. He was drunk, whispered Joan. He isn't to be blamed. He's not my old Jim. He's suffering. He's changed. He doesn't care. What could I expect, standing there like a hussy, before him, in this, this indecent rig? I must see him. I must tell him. If he recognized me now, and I had no chance to tell him why I'm here, why I look like this, that I love him, am still good and true to him. If I couldn't tell him, I'd, I'd shoot myself. Joan sobbed out the final words and then broke down. And when the spell had exercised its sway, leaving her limp and shaken and weak, she was the better for it. Slowly calmness returned, so that she could look at her wild and furious rush from the spot where she had faced Jim Cleve, at the storm of shame ending in her collapse. She realized 
that if she had met Jim Cleve here in the dress in which she had left home, there would have been the same shock of surprise and fear and love. She owed part of that breakdown to the suspense she had been under and then the suddenness of the meeting. Looking back at her agitation, she felt that it had been natural, that if she could only tell the truth to Jim Cleve, the situation was not impossible. But the meeting, and all following it, bore tremendous revelation of how through all this wild experience she had learned to love Jim Cleve. But for his reckless flight and her blind pursuit, and then the anxiety, fear, pain, toil, and despair, she would never have known her woman's heart and its capacity for love. End of chapter 10